Hey there, it's the Inside the Story podcast. Mac Rosenberg here, and we're talking sports again this week and the history of one of the most popular, well-known shows on television for the last two decades. Want to feel old? HBO just turned 50. And to celebrate, the website The Ringer recently ran several stories about the network. One of them was about hard knocks, the inside look at NFL training camps that fans have grown to become obsessed with over the last 20 years. So how did Hard Knocks start? My guest is Jake Kring-Trifles, and he recently charted the journey for The Ringer. Jake, thanks for joining us. Hey, Vic. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Yeah. Uh, A lot of unique aspects of Hard Knocks. Uh, It's a show that happens in real time. It's put together very quickly on a weekly basis. The access is unparalleled, as we know. So how did this all come together back in uh, 2001? Yeah, so it's an interesting story because it's bigger than just one little show. It it was kind of a, a real trend happening throughout television, which was reality TV. And I first kind of went about this by looking at the creator because he, Marty Kallner was this television director that initially came up with this concept and he was not really involved with the show and it still is not really involved with the show to this day. He was just responsible for coming up with the concept and, and seeing it through to the finish line of it being bought by HBO and, and NFL films. But he had been in comedy TV director and music video director for a long time, had a real sense of what was uh, relevant at the time. And he had this idea one night at dinner, he told me, that it just popped into his head. What if we did reality television, but for an NFL team and for rookies who are trying to make an NFL team at training camp? There hadn't really been sports documentaries done in the reality TV world like real world on MTV, for instance, or even a survivor show, which had just started to crop up in, uh, I think 1999 or 2000. And so that was just starting to kind of take over network television, but not in a way that was real, not in a way that was, well, it was game stuff. You know, it was just putting people into a, a room and seeing how they reacted or, you know, playing competition games like survivor, but it hadn't really been done as a cinema verite style. And so that was the initial concept. He just came up at dinner and he started to make some calls. He, he talked to the NFL lead, league office. He had done some sports stuff before earlier in his career in the 70s. He was director for the Boston Celtics. So he had some inroads and started making calls. And HBO and NFL started to figure out that this was going to be a thing. Reality television was going to really take off. And the idea just hit NFL Films' uh, Steve Sable, the legend, Steve Sable for a long time had been doing things like hard knocks, but not anywhere to the extent that they were uh, going to be doing. So he had the background, he had the directors and the filmographers, and it really didn't take a lot of convincing between HBO and and the NFL to, to figure out a joint way to do this. Yeah, you mentioned the reality TV thing and how new that still was in the U.S. What might things be like if this show was just starting today? Do you think it could work? Yeah, I mean, I think today you've seen it. It's still uh, getting tons of viewership, and they even created a spinoff series for an in-season Hard Knocks. So I I think it would have been a matter of time anyway for a sports show to do a behind-the-scenes 
kind of series. And there's been so many different spinoffs of it. I mean, you look at the F1 series, Drive to Survive. Even Amazon has their own all or nothing show. They've done some uh, European soccer clubs. They've done obviously the NFL as well. Um, there's been some other college programs. And and really, when you look at uh, media teams in the house for all these uh, different NFL teams, they have done their own version of it. The Jets, if you're a New York uh, fan, have done one Jets drive. And a lot of these other teams have done similar kinds of Hard Knocks inspired shows. So I think when Hard Knocks came out in 2001, it was revolutionary, but it was just the first of something that probably would have happened regardless because the trend was happening that way. And I think today you can still see it's so fascinating to see any any anyone really trying to make an NFL team. The NFL is so prominent in our lives as uh, sports fans. And so that is the league to really create the drama, the training camp. There really isn't anything like it in other professional sports. So that I think all automatically is, the, is the, the dramatic element necessary to, to draw in people today. One of the reasons the show worked and continues to work so well is that nothing is scripted. I mean, this is really reality TV I and mean, the cameras are not too intrusive You've got the players mic'd up, you know, in uh, during practice. You know, there was a an interesting moment where you know they initially had a, a boom microphone, you know, uh, lowering down into a conversation, and Brian Billick said, "No, no, 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 we we can't do this." So they decided to put the mics on the players. Um, how much, you know, early on were they thinking about? how to make this true reality television and not be too intrusive. How much of a goal was that? I think that was the biggest goal, really. I think that was always on their minds because they really didn't want to make it feel manufactured. And really, when you think about Hard Knocks, if you watch any season of the show, the best moments are when the players and coaches forget their cameras around. And they were able to achieve this, you know, in a variety of ways. They had the robotic cameras, even back then in 2001 with low production quality and, and still trying to figure out how they wanted to do this. They still had robotic cameras in the coaches room, the, in the team room, meeting rooms and such. And so those helped provide a little bit of uh, forgetfulness on, the, <laughs> on behalf of the coaches and players. And I think in general, once you go, wire up players, you know, you talked about those boom mics. I think once they get rid of those and you just wire up players, even today you can see players forget that they have the wire on them after a while. They just start going off and, and having conversations like normal. So all that stuff was really in service of trying to be as discreet and fly on the wall as possible. And I think that's what really made this show pop was just having those moments where you forget and you're just becoming – all these cameramen became part of the background necessary to, to achieve that. Let's talk about that first team on Hard Knocks, the 2001 Ravens, coming off of a, a championship, and that is not the way it is today. You've got usually the team that's on Hard Knocks cannot have made the playoffs the previous season. Uh, some of the characters on this team really made the show. It, it seemed like the relationship – that the production crew had with the head coach, Brian Billick, it seemed like Billick was really all in on this. Yeah. Brian Billick, I think is really the, the savior and, and reason why hard knocks became a long running TV show because they didn't really have uh, an expectation that this was going to be a multi-season thing. This was, mm. let's just try this. And 
Brian Billick, because he had a PR background, because he was so eloquent, because he had so um, much personality, there was so much to work with just with him alone. And you'll notice there was not a narrator in this first season. They have Liev Schreiber come in, uh, I think, at the very beginning of the show, just as a very introductory kind of, hey, this is what we're doing. And he doesn't have his voice in anything else except for maybe a promo to to, to kind of uh, prepare viewers for the next show. So really, they relied on Brian Billick to be the show's narrator and guide through training camp. And they, I think I mentioned this in the oral history, but they have uh, a, a little bit of uh, some memories of between the director, Bob Angelo and Brian Billick of just saying, Hey, you know, could you talk to me about this? Cause we need just this segue. We need this transition to this scene. You just tell us uh, about this player, or could you describe what happens at a training camp practice? Because this is also the first time viewers were really learning what training camp really entailed and, Oh, you know, we have to go to meetings, all of this stuff that today seems so commonplace and, and, and because of hard knocks had to start somewhere. And so Brian really explains beyond just uh, what his thoughts are on players. It's really what it's like to be leading a training camp. So he was a big part of it. And then obviously you have Tony Siragusa and Shannon Sharp, who are the big pranksters on the show and have so much personality and so many jokes and kind of nudge a lot of the maybe shyer players on the team. So you're coming with a arsenal of a great head coach who can give you narration. And then also these players who are big time personalities can kind of add humor. And it was a really great dynamic just with those three. And then you get on top of that, Ray Lewis and Rod Woodson and some of these veterans and guys who are coming off the Super Bowl. And then you don't even mention the fact that they don't even have Trent Dilfer coming back to the team. They've got a completely new quarterback, which was almost ignored in, in this season. So there were so many different uh, you know storylines, but also the characters really brought this home. And it, it ended up becoming a, a really strange training camp in and of itself, too. Yeah, going back to the coach thing, that's fascinating to me that they had Brian Billick essentially be the narrator for the first season. I got to believe today nothing like that would ever happen. You you you, you would never the the you know, the the production crew HBO, the NFL would never ask um, you know, a Rex Ryan or a Sean McVay to narrate and come in and just come in and let's go over some stuff. And we're going to ask you this so we can put this in the show. I got to believe that, you know, that's something that you really need to have a coach that is all in on something like this. But today I feel like those coaches are probably more apt to say something like, I I got work to do, you know, that, that is that kind of, you, do you know, you know, when Leif Schreiber came in as their narrator, was that one of the big reasons? Do you think? Yeah, I think it was it was mostly a matter of of establishing what this show was about, and I think that's why he became so valuable. Billick did to the first season because I think anybody who watches Hard Knocks today they don't need a head coach to explain what a practice mm. schedule looks like, um, or they don't need to explain why it's important to have a rookie show as a way to break up the monotony of camp. You know, back in 2001, not many people really knew about training camp. So that was a really valuable way to have people grasp what was going on at any given moment and why these things were happening. 
But generally speaking, I think today you're right. I, you wouldn't really ask a head coach to explain the details of a, you know, walkthrough practice. <laughs> but you know, the, I think I think the the character base, the story segues, the the transitions, the editing, that's all improved vastly. And people just today have a general higher IQ about what the NFL training camp experience is like. Um, but again, back then it was really great to have Brian because he did kind of work as a, as a PR machine almost for the NFL. And he understood that too. And he understood it could work both ways because the reason the Ravens even signed on to this in the first place was a way to, to really get their brand even bigger after the Super Bowl and help people understand what this team was and who the important people were and, and show off who these players were. It, re- it really did work both ways, I think, for them. Take me through some of the process that the production crew went through on a weekly basis to get this show done. It didn't seem very easy in those early days. Yeah, this was uh, probably the biggest uh, illuminating thing that I learned because, again, I'm so used to seeing the way modern production teams work and understanding how it's all become digital. You just find a hard drive, you upload, you send along to the computer, and... (laughs) Back then, it was very analog. They had these things called digibeta tapes that they shot on. And again, you're you're creating an episode within a week. So a lot of the time, you're having to get all this footage that you get from, from one day. And you've got to send it from where they were in, in Maryland all the way to Mount Laurel, New Jersey. And in some ways, luckily that they didn't choose a West Coast team for this first <laughs> first try because they had guys on the road in cars driving specifically as their role to be drivers or runners. And they take the tapes from the actual video cameras and drive them up to the production houses where they then upload them. They'd have all this logging they had to do. This is the tape from early morning practice on Monday. They'd have to log every little thing. They'd have to listen to all the wires and and hear all the audio and make sure it all synced up and, and what would be good sound. You have to listen to everything because you never know what kind of conversation might be the best. And so that whole process, I mean, the, some of the guys who I talked to, it would just be long, long hours, late nights trying to log. Then you do it all again the next day. And at, at a certain point halfway through the week, you know, you, you, you bring all this footage to your coordinating producer. He would have to put it together, figure out as an editor – what was the most intriguing, most uh, interesting as a person watching this. So there's just so much. And and that's not even counting the fact that uh, Bob Angela, who directed this whole show, is also trying to navigate five or six different camera guys each day, trying to get the best shots, making sure he's got his guys in every different corner of the facility just in case something happens. So there was so much going on at once. It really is remarkable the way they pulled this off just because there was no template for this at all a staple of the show that uh, still exists today is the rookie class and watching these guys these long shots trying to make the team do you think that there were maybe talks among the production crew about how to properly go about profiling these guys without getting in the way of them you know they're fighting for their dream here yeah, I think that's probably the toughest thing that um, Bob Angelo had to navigate. Um, there 
are certain rookies that you know are going to make the team. In this case, it was Todd Heap, mm. uh, obviously a legendary Pro Bowl tight end that was a first-round pick. And so you kind of knew, okay, this guy's going to make the team. We don't need to worry about his status necessarily. We can go more lifestyle with him and do more fun stuff with him and his new wife and go to Best Buy and watch him buy a TV. Uh, but the other guys, it is it is harder because you want to make sure that you're capturing everything. And a lot of these undrafted guys are very new to the NFL training camp experience, let alone just being filmed for the first time. And I do remember Bob talking about when Kenny Jackson, who was one of the linebackers featured in this, he ultimately is is cut. And at the very end, he has his camera in Kenny's face and he's getting ready to go to the airport. And I think Kenny was just really, Bob, really, do you have to do this to me right now? I've given you six weeks and now you're in my face as I, in my lowest moment, you know, this, let, let, let's, let's give me a break here. But, you know, Bob has to be the fly on the wall. He has to still do his job. It's a tough situation as a filmographer to be able to kind of create these relationships with these guys and also find the necessary separation that you can still film them in their worst moments. So that was always the the, the struggle there. Um, but I think they knew as they were almost TV characters watching themselves each week that this was going to help benefit them as well, you know, in some ways. And that, that giving their personality and giving their all on camera uh, could potentially help them later down the road for another team. Yeah, and that part of the show, I think for the viewer, has become a really popular part because – you know, these rookies kind of become household names over the summer and the viewers develop an emotional connection. Yeah, absolutely. And it's funny, obviously back then they didn't have social media. They didn't have chances to promote themselves or weren't used to having cameras in their face. Today's show, if if you have a guy who suddenly becomes a fan favorite after week two in, in training camp, everyone is flocking to his social media. You know, he's seeing the love on Twitter there's a lot more personal interaction. I think it's just easier to share who you are and 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 get become a, a more of a celebrity in that way today than maybe even back then. But even today, I, I think some of the Ravens players were telling me they would go out and be in a grocery store and people would recognize them from Hard Knocks, recognize their kids from Hard Knocks. So even then, without it necessarily being a social media world, there were still enough people watching HBO and, and seeing uh, these new fans latch on to NFL players that was happening. And it was uh, interesting to watch. Jay Crink Trifles is my guest. His recent piece in The Ringer chronicles the first season of Hard Knocks on HBO. You went back, at, you watched the first season for this and so having seen the product and also you got a very extensive behind the scenes look at, at what it was like to put this whole thing together. Did it feel like you were watching a masterpiece maybe, or, you know, you've probably seen more recent season as well, more, more recent seasons as well. Is it more clear that this was kind of just laying the groundwork and that they would need to make some improvements? I think it was definitely more of a groundwork <laughs> laying endeavor. Um, this was, this was revolutionary at the time and it's, it is hard having seen the production quality today and then going back to really see it in that same light. But again, this has been the first time they had done something like this. So there really just wasn't a precedent. And I think for what they all had to do for the first time, 
which was, again, as I mentioned, kind of going through this week-long process for six straight weeks, figuring out how to make the best show with all these random scenes and assortment of quotes and clips and behind-the-scenes stuff. You know, that that in itself is so hard. And I actually, when I talked to some of the guys I was mentioning, uh, that this felt this first season felt very much like Jackass, the uh, TV show or movie, mm. because if you notice in even that, in that stuff, there's a lot of scenes and clips and they don't really transition. They just kind of peel off and then they start somewhere else. And <laughs> the music is very hokey in this uh, Hard Knocks up season one. And there's just a, a lot of, oh, this feels very 2001. Um, <laughs> but at the same time, you know, it, it's pretty impressive for what they were able to do. I think today, and and many of the, the NFL films players that I, I talked to, it, it's very much a different uh, experience because they understand how much the production value has changed and they can very much uh, be aware of that, <laughs> that change. And so they're, they're, they're very much a, uh, on, on the side of, yes, we have improved this way better than it was, but they still can appreciate um, that, that first season. Yeah, you watch it now and you, you can see a, a storyline playing out within each episode that resolves itself at the end. Sounds like maybe not so much early on. They're kind of just throwing stuff together and seeing what, what worked. Yeah, and it was. It was a little bit of, of throwing stuff at the wall. And you can kind of feel that. There are those scenes where you're in the cafeteria and then suddenly it just goes back to Brian Billick talking about practice the next day. And you're like, wait a second, where, why, why did we make this cut? Or, right. you know, so there are those moments and it is a little bit jarring, those jump cuts or just even the way that you <laughs> go into a new city when they're traveling to a, to a, a game. And <laughs> there's just different establishing shots that feel very much part of uh, the late 90s, early 2000s kind of style. Um, that would just would never happen today. The music is a big thing that a lot of people mention, though, that has changed dra- drastically. There's just so much more uh, contemporary pop culture, hip hop music I- in these shows now that just makes it people who are maybe even a casual fan really uh, engage with it a lot more. I do want to ask you about uh, Tony Saragusa because watching him do games on Fox, I mean, he brought so much entertainment value to those broadcasts and reading what everyone said about him in that first season of Hard Knocks, it makes it totally connects and makes perfect sense. Why did he work so well as a character in that first season? He was basically no holds barred. I'm going to say anything. And that's not, I guess really at that point was, was never really uh, heard of before. I mean, it just, to be able to have somebody explain why they hated going back to training camp <laughs> was was not something that you would expect for the, the NFL to really get behind and 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 put their eggs in, in the basket to to kind of sell this league. He had been a you know 13 year vet at that point or somewhere in that range, maybe 10 years, and had just come off the Super Bowl. Obviously, a lot of injuries. He even gets a surgery in this season. And he's on a boat in in July, and he's already just counting down the the dread, the days uh, to which he has to go back and report to camp. Uh, so that in itself really set the tone for who he was. I mean, just going to tell it straight like it is. And it's even better when you get into camp because he really takes on this, I, I wouldn't say necessarily mentorship role, but he 
is clearly the veteran that everyone looks up to. And in that case, then he takes advantage of that <laughs> in many ways, tells rookies to get him food and sodas and, you know, will say some inappropriate things uh, to people to make them uncomfortable. Todd Heap was the recipient of a lot of that stuff. And it's funny just to see the dynamic of an old school versus new school. He made a certain amount of money when he got into the league and Todd Heap's making, you know, five, six million as a first round draft pick. People are blown away. He likes taking advantage of those uh, those feelings of uh, insecurity in some ways. So there's just there's so much tension there. And then, of course, the pranks with Shannon Sharp. He and Shannon kind of came up uh, as as contemporaries. And so there's just a lot of, of great scenes of them together. So it just it just made a lot of sense that he could be the unfiltered guy that you go to as the camera guy and say, hey, uh, we need your thoughts on this. And he just tells it like it is and gets the real nitty gritty of, of what training camp's like. This was an oral history, uh, which you've done many of. What do you think of oral histories versus, you know, just a straight profile? And uh, what's your strategy to make them work well? Well, this is an interesting case study because I was originally going to do this as an, a regular written through feature. Hmm. And the more people I talked to, um, the more it just felt like they had so many interesting details and and also had different perspectives on the same scenes and things that it made more sense in my eyes to transition this away from my voice and more into theirs. I was able to get a, a few more players than I anticipated. Uh, I spoke with Brian Billick, Shannon Sharp, uh, spoke with a lot of the NFL films guys as well. And I think by doing that, you know, they just had so many more details and things I could express uh, through their voices than just me uh, kind of transitioning <laughs> every other sentence to a quote of theirs. So in that in that sense, this worked out really well. And I think overall, oral histories um, give you that option. They, they let they let you create this conversation that doesn't exist. Uh, because you're speaking to each person individually, but when put together, it feels of one piece and it feels as though they're in the same room together. And I've always enjoyed kind of crafting a, a story like that because when you have people talk about someone, as in this case, everyone had a story about Tony Siragusa. Well, I, I really want to include everyone's different thoughts on him. So an oral history really works to that favor. It's it's a little bit easier to do a feature when maybe you don't have as many sources and maybe you don't uh, feel as though that they are, that, that the quotes that you have are, are really giving great details and, and you might need to work and do your own writing on that end of it. So when you have great material, you have a lot of people, it just feels like it's a, it's a better outlet to, to express a lot of these ideas and stories. Jay Kring Schreifels talking about the first season of Hard Knocks, which he wrote about for The Ringer. Jake, thanks again for the time. Mac, it was a pleasure. Thanks so much, man. And you can see Jake's story along with all the other HBO 50th anniversary reporting at The Ringer. Just Google search The Ringer HBO. Next week, we're sticking with sports, but that's only the beginning and certainly not the middle or end for Andrew Luck, who shocked the world by retiring as quarterback of the Colts before the 2019 season at the age of 29. We're learning a lot more about what went into that decision as Andrew Luck needed to figure out who he really was. ESPN's Seth Wickersham is here to tell the story. We'll talk to you next week.